Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is David Misson. His key topic of discussion will be discussing leadership and culture in high performance. David is the head of performance at the Sydney Roosters Football Club. He is a highly experienced leader with 25-year background in high performance and team dynamics. Dave has worked with some of Australia's most respected and successful sporting organisations, such as the Australian Cricket Team, the Sydney Swans Football Club, and Tennis Australia. Highlights from this episode, we discuss the importance of developing movement IQ and competency in young athletes, key high performance processes and systems, how to tell a story to athletes using GPS data and vision, understanding each athlete and how they will respond differently to the program and knowing when to adjust, and how to develop psychological safety in your environment. Before we start this episode, for those coaches wanting to learn how to create an online coaching successful business and make an impact in elite sport, then our Coaches Academy is for you. You get access to our step-by-step roadmap to launching your own online coaching business, extensive training library and exclusive discounts and tools. You'll also become part of our active and supportive community filled with strength and conditioning coaches from all over the world who can help you along your coaching journey with practical feedback, support and advice. All of this and more make our academy the number one place to be for a strength and conditioning coach wanting to start, manage, and grow a successful coaching business. To join, head to preparelikeaproacademy.com.au. Thank you for listening. Hopefully see you on the next Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Thanks, Jack. Great to be here. Dive in the beginning of your career. At what age did you discover you had a passion for high performance and uh, more specifically strength and conditioning, working with elite athletes? Yeah, look, I, I was a, a track and field athlete myself. I ran 400 hurdles. Wasn't quite fast enough to to really crack, you know, national teams and things like that. But, you know, I had a long career training with some really great athletes and coaches and really, really fell into track and field coaching after I, after I gave it away myself as an athlete. And I think, you know, track and field certainly gave me a great grounding for strength and conditioning and a, and a career in that. You know, because you're working on all of those different parameters and, and, and facets of, you know, getting strong, getting fast, getting fit, getting powerful. Yeah. So that, that background really sort of helped me, I think. And having that background, as you mentioned, as being an athlete and then going into as a coach, do you feel like it, it helps practitioners that have got that sense of what it's like going through, you know, tough training blocks and, and competing at, at high level in terms of a coach in performance? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, track and field is obviously, you know, movement-based. Most of the, the the big sports in Australia are movement-based sports. And I, I felt that that just, yeah, I, I just sort of came into strength and conditioning, you know, with a really good head start, I think, because of my background in track and field. And the, the roles that I got initially, and, you know, they were very, very part-time roles. So with, you know, with the AIS rugby program and Tennis Australia was a lot about Improving the, improving the movement capacity of their players and athletes. In rugby, it was, you know, analysing running technique and providing some input there to players. And, you know, it just sort of evolved from there. And were there more opportunities in team-based sports? Is that why you gravitate towards being a track and field coach and athlete at that time? Or was it simply a passion project of yours? It's probably more money, I reckon, in team-based yeah. sports. Yeah, look, I, 
you know, I love track and field coaching, but back in those days, like, you know, it was even a, you know, an imposition to ask your athletes to to pay a nominal fee, unlike say mm. even swimming, you know, where the swimmers would pay their coaches and that was just accepted way of doing things. But even in track and field, it, you know, it started coming in, but, it, you know, you felt as a coach that it was a bit of an imposition because these guys weren't earning any money at all. And But I love that. It, it gave me a great grounding to, as I said, move into the team sport area. And what about from a connection point of view? Like obviously you mentioned the technical attributes that transferred over into team sports and, and allowed you to get these part-time roles quite early on in your career. But do you feel like from a connection point of view, you have empathy with, with high-performing athletes by experiencing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, sort of knowing what they were going through, being able to really, I suppose, add value to their program, you know, because you, you're working with a lot of sports that were skill-based, you know, tennis, rugby, cricket, whatever, netball. So they were skill-based sports, but from a, a strength and conditioning point of view, you know, a lot of these sports were still, you know, in, in the early stages of realising how important strength and conditioning could be to a performance and a season. So you felt coming in that you could really add some value to the program and to the athlete. And for the S&Cs listening in that don't have that <clears> weapon yet, where they can add value from a skills point of view to a program, so the program, yeah, they're not getting headhunted or they're not getting invited into the program, so they need to try and develop that. What would be your advice for, for developing a, a strength when you're early on in your career to get those opportunities? Yeah, just to, just to get a real diverse range of experiences and, and not necessarily paid ones, you know, and some of them are pretty hard to come by. And, and even at the Roosters, you know, we, we sort of got a, uh, an intern program. And I, I think it's an accepted thing these days that, you know, people coming straight out of uni will do an internship where, the, you know, they won't be earning any money, but hopefully they're going to be learning some great skills. But, you know, my advice would be to get a, try and get a diverse range of skills and probably more specifically, you know, improve, improve your mo- movement IQ. You know, if, you, if you're not from a track and field background or you don't have a, a you know, a movement-based background, I think that's an area that you should really try and upskill yourself in. And going back to your progression early on in your career, did you have strong influences that helped you shape your, your development or mentors, if you like? Yeah, I did. You know, my track and field coaches and, you know, had a couple of those significantly who, who really helped me. You know, the school that I went to, the high school that I went to, Waverley College, you know, had a really, really strong track and field program and, and their head coach, you know, was a big influence on me 10 years down the track, you know, on, on how to run a professional program and, and how to, you know, work through processes and systems, you know, with a big group of, big group of athletes. But uh, yeah, I've, I've got a, a guy probably in particular, he's actually a, a tennis coach when I first started working with Tennis Australia guy called Ken Richardson, who taught me a lot about just being on the road and working with athletes. And probably the main thing he taught me was that it's it's all about the athlete. You know, whatever you're doing, whatever program you're implementing, whatever, you know, situation you're in, it's about helping the athlete get the best out of themselves at any given time. And that might sound obvious, but what what can distract coaches away from that focus being all about the athlete? Yeah, look at, you know, it's often about choices, you know, and Funny, you know, we're on a say a tennis circuit within Australia where our players are playing sort of four tournaments in a row week after week. And in a tennis tournament, if you get knocked out, then your week's essentially over. So it was about understanding well, you know, if your player got knocked out in the second round, their week wasn't over with you because you had a, a really good chance there to do a couple of days of real solid work with them. The tennis coaches get them on the court and 
and really get them ready for the next week. But it's, yeah, it's it's not over, am I trying to say. It's sort of, you know, you're thinking about the athlete all the time and thinking mm-hmm. about their next competition and, and their next event and trying to plan how best you can get them up for that, especially if they've had a disappointing week the previous week. So, yeah, it was really all about, you know, every day you get up, it's about thinking, well, you know, what's the best preparation for the athletes that we're working with? Both today, but also, you know, in the in the short term and medium term. Uh, do you have a, a process, whether it be driving to work, where you, you start shifting into focusing on the athlete, or like you mentioned, when you first wake up, or is there a reflection piece as well at the end of the day? Like, talk us through how you like to plan your, your weeks and your and sort of, I guess, your mindset as a coach. Pro- probably Sunday arvos. Like I, I really used to enjoy and still do, you know, sitting down on a Sunday arvo and four o'clock and having a couple of a couple of hours before dinner, really you know, getting the week, visualizing the week in my head and then and sitting down and planning it. Also, you know, I like to train most mornings. So, you know, if I'm sitting on a watt bike or something like that, then, you know, that seems to be where I actually get quite creative. So, uh, you know, I'll train with a little notebook on my phone and, you know, if ideas come into my head, then, you know, I'll use that time to, yeah, to help sort of build some, you know, build some sort of information around the basic plans that I've nutted out. And you mentioned go back to your career journey, part-time gigs that you were getting in a range of different sports. What was your first full-time contract in, in elite sport? Yeah, I was telling someone the other day, it was, it was with the Aussie cricket team. And uh, okay, yeah, the, start. Yeah, the advertisement in that was on the inside back page of the Daily Telegraph, believe it or not. So, oh, wow. yeah, so, you know, I cut out the advert and, you know, put a CV together and then we're on a family holiday on the way to the Gold Coast. And I remember sort of dropping the, you know, the application into a phone, a letterbox in Coolangatta hoping for the best and yeah, luckily it came off. And what was the role? Yeah, it was sort of, you know, head of strength and conditioning with with the team. It was a role that had been spoken about for probably 12 months leading up to me being given the role. Jeff Marsh was the coach and he'd been used to having a full, you know, an almost full-time S&C with the Western Australian set up where he came from and, you know, he pushed pretty hard with the the cricket board to, to have it with the Aussie set up. And yeah, it was just fantastic. You know, there was... There was Jeff, the head coach. There was Errol Olcott at the time, who was head physio, and myself. So, you know, not only S&C, but I found myself being a, a pretty solid net bowler and, you know, learning how to, you know, to run fielding sessions and, you know, put on a catching mitt to the fast bowlers when they warmed up before, you know, the start of a day's play. So, yeah, that job just taught me so much, not just about strength and conditioning, but, you know, leadership and culture as well. Yeah, that's a good segue. Like, what does high-performance culture mean to you? Yeah, that's that's open-ended question. <laughs> really big question, but yeah. look at the, at the end of the day, it's about creating an environment that's going to allow your people to thrive, and particularly your players, and an environment where they feel safe, but they feel challenged, and they feel that everyone is pulling in the same direction. And you know, these things sound really easy to create, but I haven't found too many organisations or teams where it's been achieved really well. And luckily, you know. I'd, I stepped straight into a setup in my first full-time job where that was the case, particularly when Steve Waugh took over as captain. You know, that was a a real eye-opening moment for me. Probably another opening question, but in terms of high-performance culture, obviously it's a buzzword and always will be in elite sport. Do you feel like to to win the grand prize, if it it is a premiership or championship, whatever the the league is and, and you take it out, to be a sustainable, like sustained success you need high performance culture or or is it a matter of once you once you win then you've already got to that point and it's a matter of just managing it 
Yeah, high, high performance culture. I think it's I think it's about a, a good culture amongst the whole staff. You know, I think about you know the AFL teams I've been part of, and when when we were successful, it was about the coaches, the medical staff, the strength strength and conditioning staff, the recruiting staff, really all being on the same page and being able to you know communicate really clearly, having real clarity around you know roles, but also being able to challenge each other and not feel that it was a personal attack, that, you know, this was all about getting our, our club and our players to be better. And that's a, it's a really, it's an amazing, it's an amazing environment to be in when that happens. It really is. And as I said, I haven't encountered it too much, but, but when I have, it's been, yeah, electrifying really. So, and, and it has led to success, but it doesn't always lead to success because you've also got to have some really good players. It yeah. comes down to having, having good players running out there every week as well. And yeah, on that, I guess to clarify, like the, that's sort of what I was getting at. Like, can you win and still be looking good on on paper in terms of success externally, but have really poor culture? Or do you think it to to get ultimate success, yeah, yeah, you have to have all areas covered. You don't have to have the greatest of staff environments, but if you've got a great team and they're being really well coached, you can win. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a really poor environment and you know, the other stuff isn't being ticked off. If your playing group, you know, is mediocre, there's absolutely no way you're going to win. But having having a great environment and, you know, having a, you know, a great bunch of players, you're going a long way towards being successful. Absolutely. And no doubt because of COVID, unfortunately, there's been a real shuffle in the industry with new staff working together. What do you think takes longer to develop with a new team from a staff perspective? The not taking things personally when you're challenging or all getting on the same page. No, look, I think first and foremost, it's you know, and what I've learned this year with the Roosters, it's it's been clarity around roles. You know, people need to know what their roles are and what's expected of them, and then you know they need to be able to live up to those expectations. And the job of a leader is to really clearly illustrate and 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 explain and communicate what's expected of each individual within their roles. And and then it's about you know being able to challenge each other and challenge other people in your department if you don't think that they're doing the right thing or if you think that things can be done differently and better. That's really important, but that can take time because that requires strong relationships. And again, you know, I've learned this year, it's probably taken us 12 months at the Roosters to for the, the S&C and medical guys to get to know each other and uh, yeah. to have, you know, good relationships and be able to challenge each other. So, you know, it's been a, been a really, really great year getting to know some of the people in and around this rugby league club. Is it on that note, like as a leader in, in, a, in a new team, like do you have set sort of uh, workshops or activities that you like to do that have worked in the past that you roll out into new environments or is it each environment a bit different, everyone's a little bit, a little bit unique and it just does simply take time and needs to be natural? Yeah, at the, at the beginning, you know, when, when I first started, probably this time next year, we came together as a staff group and, you know, there are some things you know, I, I was out of elite sport for a couple of years where I did a Masters of Leadership and some of the things that I learned there, you know, I rolled out to the guys 12 months ago just to get to know each other a bit better and and just to probably connect and open up and be a little bit vulnerable. But at the end of the day, it's just about spending some time with each other and, and going through tough losses or, you know, a run of injuries or, yeah, just other other challenges where you're forced to come together and, and really sit down and, and talk about, well, you know, what's happened? How can we do this better? And what are we going to learn for next time? And going back to your career progression, you've had the 
a luxury and also being able to work in a range of different environments. Was that a, a, a focus of yours early on or was it something that just sort of happened through doing, I imagine, good job at one club and then you build your network and it starts to, you, know, you start getting headhunted in different programs. But yeah, how, how intentional was it to work in all the different types of sports that you've been able to do over your career? Yeah, look, at, at, pardon me, it wasn't intentional at all. You know, as I said, like my track and field and, you know, my my speed development back, background allowed me to to land a couple of roles early working in, you know, rugby union, cricket, tennis, netball. And then, yeah, things just, you know, happened and, you know, as I say, I applied for the Aussie team and, and got that job. And and then, you know, moving into the Swans after that, it was right place at the right time. You know, the late Steve Lawson, who was football manager at the Swans, a great man with a cricket background. Him and I used to catch up whenever I'd come off the road from a, a cricket trip. And one of those times he said, look, you know, we're looking for, a, you know, a head S&C at the Swans. And it just happened to be a time where I, I needed to get off the road. I had two young kids and my wife wanted to go back to work. And yeah, so I just sort of fell into that. And AFL, to me, really suited my skill set. You know, I was a 400-metre runner. I sort of felt that these guys were almost 200, 400, 800-metre athletes, you know, and, and trained them like that. So, yeah, things just evolved from there. And, yeah, you know, 20 years later, find myself in rugby league, which is actually where I started with one of my part-time gigs initially, you know, so. Working in different sports, like from a skill set point of view as an S&C, like what do you gain from it? Yeah, like, I, you know, I've been around sport all my life. My father was a cricketer and my mum was a track and field athlete. So, yeah, I, I felt I had a really good intuitive sense of whatever sport I watched. I could sort of pick up the nuances of, of sports. And I, I found that, you know, when I started working in sport as well, I would intentionally spend a lot of time with the coaches, say with a you know, tennis coach, and try to understand the game more, netball and, you know, rugby union, even though I played it at school. But AFL was a game that I'd, I'd watched a little bit of, but never played and, you know, never been involved in. And yeah, just spending time with some smart people, smart AFL people helped me understand the game and fast track my education there. And you mentioned, yeah, the, the transference of doing conditioning work with from the, you know, like a 400 metre runner for track and field, learning the different things like the wrestling component and the, and the weights work. How would you go about doing that? Was that all internal, like you said, working with some smart coaches and practitioners or would you research, you know, speak to other practitioners in the industry? How would you sort of self-develop during that new phase when you're working on it with a new team? I'd, I'd do all of that and, you know, any courses that, you know, say practical courses that would be available, I'd, you know, I'd take advantage of those and really, yeah, talking to other practitioners. And, you know, when I was coming through 25, 30 years ago, you know, there are a lot of people in my roles who were quite secretive, you know, they didn't want to pass on what they felt were their their secrets and, you know, the special way that they used to do things. But there are also others who were really open and, and willing to willing to share. And those are the guys that and ladies that I would, you know, associate with and learn from particularly. Moving over to the sports science sort of data analytics, how would you sort of marry up the, between the art of, of coaching and, and sports science? Obviously, it's developed a fair bit more recently, but yeah, how do you balance the two in your current role as head of performance? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges for practitioners at the moment. But I think at the end of the day, like we've got to remember we're working with people, you know, and, and every person's different. And you've got to understand that, you know, each athlete, you know, what, what you ask them to do and, you know, a program that you provide for them, they will respond differently to that. So from an art point of view, you've 
got to understand your people. You've got to be intuitive enough to know, you know, how your your staff are going, how, how your players are going in particular, and be able to adjust based on what you're seeing there. In saying that, you know, we're at a you know at a moment in time where we're just getting so much data on our athletes. So it's really about understanding what matters and what's important and. You know, we, we always talk about, you know, measuring what matters at the Roosters and, you know, be honest about, well, what can we intervene with? If data is telling us something about our athletes, is it actually something we're going to intervene and make a difference? I think the other thing is the data needs to tell a story to the athlete. You know, we're providing athletes with GPS reports for training and games, but what does it mean for a, a rugby league player to to run 8.5 metres per second in a kick chase? What's the difference between 8.5 and 7.5? So, you know, you need to show them, you know, on, on video and, and through vision, you know, the fact that they ran 8.5 metres per second means that they could have, you know, they were able to tackle the fullback in the end goal and force a repeat set. So things yeah. like that where, you you know, you're showing the athletes, well, if you hadn't have run that fast, you know, you wouldn't have got that result and this is what it looked like because, you know, a lot of the, the players and athletes that we're dealing with are visual learners, you know, so mm. you need to be able to tell that story with your data. Yeah, I like that. At the end of the day, it is their data. So to be able to show them how you're using it and how effective it could be to – so then when you're next asking them to open up and do some strides or sprints in, in training and you want to hit that 8.5, he's going to probably refer back to that moment of how important it was in that game. That's exactly right, you know, and yeah, you know, you're getting out on the training track and you're getting them to do MAS or, you know, repeat 80 meter sprints or something like that. And they're saying, well, why are we doing this? And exactly, you know, you're referring, remember that video I showed you last week, this is the difference between tackling the fullback in goal or the fullback, you know, getting out to the 10 meters and them having a full set. So it makes a lot of sense. And what about for the, the technical, tactical coaches, how do you sort of use GPS with them, whether it be in meetings or while you're planning training sessions? Yeah, look, the same way, in, in a way, you know, then the good coaches will always say, well, why are we doing this? You know, what, why are you prescribing this session? And I, I always find that, you know, really good, you know, because you've got to justify yeah, why you're prescribing a certain, you know, training plan and training program. So, you know, a lot of coaches and our current coach, you know, is, is really sports science intelligence so you know you can go through a gps report with him and he'll absolutely understand it but you know some you've got to just yeah talk them through it and walk them through it and say well this is what this is showing and this is why we're doing a certain a certain drill or a certain you know training session and and make sure that yeah you're able to justify it and it's it's absolutely relative to the game model that they're they're trying to roll out and going back to planning and processes you've mentioned that you've that you you routinely do during the week, whether it be while you're training, you're getting creative with your training prescription, and and Sunday afternoons are sort of your thinking time in terms of visualizing the week. What are some other sort of high performance sort of planning processes that you you're in routine in doing in in season or or might be in pre season that you find is quite effective? Yeah, look, I suppose my my big thing I, I like to start with the macro cycle and work down. You know, I I really like the the, the long term plan and being able to you know, for example, we spent last week looking at our pre-Christmas and our post-Christmas before round one already for 2023. And for me, I love that. You know, I love working on that sort of mac pardon me, macro cycle because that then gives me structure and it gives me a framework that I can then, 
you know, put our other loading cycles through. So I'm, I'm always starting from the big framework and the macro cycle and then working my way down. Uh, and that's something that I've always done because I just, yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah. And, yeah, who would participate in those meetings? Is it head, just head coach or is <clears> it a, a few other people as well? Yeah, we, we had our whole, you know, footy staff, like, coaches and high performance and medical. So again, you know, I'm someone and, and Trent, my coach at the moment, you know, really appreciates input from from everyone. And they can probably make the meetings go a little bit longer. And, you know, because everyone's sometimes got a, you know, something to say, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather that than just two people nutting it out. And you, you get to, you know, three weeks into your pre-Christmas and you think, geez, we, we hadn't considered this or you know, we've overlooked that. Yeah, so it, it's a pretty democratic process. Hey there, hope you're enjoying this episode with David Misson. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with the high performance manager of the Fremantle Dockers, Phil Merriman. What about for developing footballers? You've seen a lot of high level footballers from a few different clubs now. What traits? Is there a consistent trait that you see, whether it be the mental side, the way they go about their craft, or or their the physical side in terms of their athleticism? Is there something that you, with the freeman or developing players that you you focus on as a fundamental area that um, game? That you- not, I wouldn't say particularly we focus on, but I guess one of the traits that that I've noticed across all three clubs is the ones that can play two hundred games and are very successful in their career. They never lose the curiosity to to become better, and that plays out in in a, a range of different behaviours. Sometimes it's out and out just getting in front of the coaches and just doing constant extras and in the gym, making sure they tick every box. What, where can I do more? Whereas the other, there's another way of the subtlety of just getting, getting things done in your own time, unseen. To hear more from Phil, make sure to scroll to episode 29 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to the rest of the episode with David Misson. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. And you mentioned the importance of having a healthy environment where people can challenge each other. Does that change depending on who's in the room or do you think that should that's the way it should be? As long as it's done respectfully, of course, you should always, no matter what, who's in the room, you should be able to challenge each other respectfully as in staff members. Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. And look, you know, the two years I was out of sport, I, you know, I studied but also worked in corporate in leadership and culture and, you know, psychological safety is is the big thing with corporate teams at the moment and it's no different to sporting teams and staff within sporting teams you need to be be able to feel comfortable and confident that if you say something it's not going to be held against you and if you say something about someone that's constructive that hopefully they're not going to take that personally but there needs to be a a safe environment and and you as the as the speaker and the other person potentially as the the listener and the receiver needs to feel that it's coming from the right place and looking back over your career at this point, what are some highlights that spring to mind that you look back on fondly and, and you, that you're proud of? Yeah, look, the 99 Cricket World Cup, you know, a really, yeah, it's amazing. It was an amazing time and a, and a really hard time. Like, and, and that's what happens in high-performance sport. You have some amazing successes, but, it, you know, it's, it's also straddled by, yeah, a tough period. I, I didn't see my kids for five months at that time. We had a a tour to the West Indies straight after an Australian summer in February 99 and then went straight from that West Indian tour to England for the World Cup. So I was away from sort of February until June and my wife came over for a couple of weeks, but, you know, I, I didn't see the kids. But 
you know, that 99 World Cup where everyone had written us off and, you know, we were, we were almost out, you know, even before the semifinal stages. And then that amazing game, you know, where we drew with South Africa and then went on to beat Pakistan was unbelievable. And then obviously, you know, 05 Premiership with the Swans. Uh, it was an incredible time as well, you know, breaking that 72-year sort of hoodoo and, and being part of a really special group of not only players but staff as well. During both of those times, looking back now, did you sort of intuitively and did the staff intuitively and, and leaders, players, the environment have a feeling that success was on the horizon during those years? Or was there reference points or is it something that it's too hard to pick until it happens? Say so the Swans example, you know, when, when Rusey took over mid-02, mid you know, we we made a, a prelim in 2003 and got beaten by Brisbane who went on to win it. And I think we all knew 2003, you know, that we were onto something special here, you know, with Rusey's game plan and coincided with bringing Ray McLean in, you know, from leading teams and, and you know, developing the Bloods culture. And they were just a special group of players as well. And again, it sort of coincided with a, you know, an amazing sort of medical strength and conditioning team that was so close and, and really aligned and connected. And it was a, yeah, you know, just a lot of things came together at that time. And yeah, it was a, a really successful era. You know, we went, we, we lost the next year only by a point, but it was a great, you know, it really set up this sort of Swans, Swans dynasty in a way that hopefully will continue, you know, tomorrow. And during that phase, did, were staff, key staff members, you mentioned how connected team was, did you lose key staff members? Like sometimes when the, the club has success that you know, people can get poached. Did you lose anyone or did you have anyone, did you have the sort of same team for a couple of years there? Yeah, no, we didn't look, you know, Andrew Ireland, who went on to be become the CEO of the Swans, he was the football manager and he was a great mentor of mine, sort of still is. And he just created an environment and set up sort of clarity and expectations around all of our roles and then just encouraged us to to go for it. You know, it, now I think it what what he did, he you know, he came from the Brisbane setup, they won three in a row. And he made us realize how important our roles were within that in that environment, how important strength strength and conditioning and medical and high, you know, high performance generally was in an AFL setup. And you know, we, we had great sort of in injury records in that period of time. And, you know, we, we prided ourselves on, yeah, on, on, you know, making our players fit and available because we realised that getting your best team on the park is going to go a long way towards you being successful. And how did Andrew do that differently to other CEOs that you've worked with in the past? Was it a one-on-one, what, the way he sort of spoke with each practitioner <laughs> or is it in a group sort of level? How did he, yeah, do a good job of making Probably a couple of ways, we, you know, Playing and working for Sydney then, we, we were on the road every second week. So, you know, whether this is right or wrong, we'd, we'd get together the night before a game and, you know, get in the manager's room and have a couple of beers. And, you know, we would end up talking shop for three or four hours. And, you know, we, we look back on those times and we absolutely think that talking to each other and spending time with each other and, yeah, you get to know each other and you have great relationships, but we did. We we literally spoke shop for three or four hours each time we get together and solve a lot of problems and chuck up a lot of theories and challenge each other. But then, you know, Andrew also would go to a board meeting and say, you know, I need some money to be put aside so these guys can go and study other clubs around the world. And every every January, you know, we would go over and we'd you know, go to Spain and have a look at Barcelona. You know, we'd go to AC Milan and, and look at their special... AC Milan lab, which was amazing. So Andrew realised that to keep being at the cutting edge, you you had to expose yourself to that. And 
you couldn't always do that just being in Australia. You had to, you know, seek teams and organisations who could provide that intel for you. Yeah, that's a great insight. Thank, thanks for sharing. On the flip side, challenges that you've faced over your career and what did you learn or how did you grow from facing those challenges? Biggest challenge, you know, I don't like losing very often. So, yeah, I think, you know, losing grand finals is really challenging. You know, 06 was a little bit more palatable because we'd won it the year before. But, you know, the St Kilda group in 9 and 10, you know, it's probably my biggest regret in sport is that those players and the coach, you know, Ross Lyon, a great friend of mine and probably the best coach I've worked with, yeah, didn't go on to be premiership players and a premiership coach because they – they were just such great people and they worked so hard. But in saying that, you know, they're a really tight-knit group right now. Every single year they get together prelim final Friday and, and have a lunch and, and they're constantly looking out for each other. And, you know, I was talking to one of the players just the other day and, yeah, we're just sort of reminiscing and saying that you don't need to win a flag and be a premiership player to, to keep an eye on your teammates and be a really close, tight-knit group. But they're probably some of the, you know, that's probably, the, as I say, the biggest disappointment for me was was that group not winning one because we went so close. It's such a unique week as well because that, that was obviously when you had that extra game or the following week from the draw. How did that week go? I couldn't imagine how it would be playing in a grand final draw and doing that week all again. Yeah, must have been an interesting one. Yeah, it was. And- I sort of went on the international rules trip at the end of that season and, and Mick was the coach. I reckon I was clinically depressed, you know, because we'd, we'd had a drawn grand final and then lost the replay and we were just so shattered and a couple of the Saints players were on that trip as well. But, yeah, look, we, we were really physically spent after the draw. You know, well, I think we were four goals down in the game and, and just it took everything to get back and draw that game. And then, you know, Milne's kick and, you know, the feeling was that, Geez, there were a couple of moments in that game that just could have gone our way. And to his credit, you know, Mick, so you, you had the, you know, the the club dinners after each grand final, sort of win or lose, you know, you go to these club dinners and and we decided that, you know, we needed our players to go home and go to bed and and try and start our recovery process. But, you know, Mick insisted the Collingwood guys go to the dinner and thank supporters and understanding that players probably weren't going to sleep after a grand final. And he sort of framed it in a way, he said to his players, because they probably didn't play as well as they would have hoped in that first one. He said, well, you're not often given a second chance in grand finals and, you know, this is half time and the scores are equal and we got a, the second half next week and history will tell you they came out and belted us. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting week. So. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I was speaking to someone the other day, I think, we were wondering what happens if it is a draw at VFL level and then, yeah, we were talking about that week and it was the first time I'd thought about it as a, you know, someone that's working in the industry about how, how yeah, it'd just be bizarre to try and pick yourself up, everyone, and, and get back on track. But, yeah, unique experience. Thanks thanks for sharing. From a moving over to the more personal sort of side of the podcast now, mate, are you a quotes man? Have you got a favourite inspirational quote or life motto? Yeah, it's sort of one from Aristotle that I've used for 25 years, and that is, we are what we repeatedly do. So excellence is, it's not a one-off, it's not an act, it's a habit. And I try and sort of explain that to your players that, you know, it's it's what you do every single day that you turn up to your footy club or your netball club or your cricket club with the mindset of trying to improve because the way you go about it every day is just the type of player you then become. You know, and you can't just pull it out of the bag on game day or in big games. It's got to be a, you know, a repeated sort of 
thing. Yeah, so that that's the one that's held me in good stead for plenty of time, plenty of years. And what about in your work life? Have you got pet peeves? Anything that fires you up? Pet peeves? Yeah, probably someone people who don't have attention to detail, a lack of attention to detail. Like I'm a pretty detailed person, so you know, near enough certainly isn't good enough for me. So if someone's just skipping over some of the finer details, then that annoys me because often down the track that'll get found out. Mistakes will be made. Pet peeves, probably people with egos who, you know, people in our in our roles who think that it's about them. You know, that really, really annoys me because the absolute opposite. It's not about you at all. It's about, you know, you creating the environment and the program to make your players better. So, you know, I'm a pretty low-key person. I, I don't sort of seek limelight at all and notoriety because for me, my satisfaction comes when my players and team are winning. So, yeah, ego is something that I... I don't enjoy seeing in other people, to be honest. And what about on your day off? What's your favourite way to yeah, spend a day off, mate? Yeah, look, now I'm in Sydney, you know, which is where I grew up. You know, I like going down to Clovelly and just jumping in the ocean. You know, I'll get out and do a training session, go for a bike ride or something like that, you know, have a nice brekkie and then go and jump in the ocean and, yeah, try and get out in the sun and just, yeah, chill out. Pretty simple, but yeah, it's something I've done for a long time, you know, while I've been travelling and, and working in high performance. And moving more to the more recent time of your career, you mentioned you had a couple of years off and did some study. What made you decide to to study that course in was it Masters of Leadership? And what have you yep. what have you gained from it now that you're back in the in the field? Yeah, well so end of twenty nineteen, you know, our family moved to Canada because my wife, you know, got a, a really big role up there and I decided to do some study, which I hadn't for a while. And it was a, a really great course, a really good practical course, but what it taught me that I think the biggest thing is that leadership is a skill and it's a skill like any other skill. And what you find, not just in, in corporate, but in sport as well, is that because you're good at something, you're very often promoted into a leadership role, but you need leadership development as much as you need goal kicking development or being taught how to tackle just because your skill, you're really proficient at certain skills that make you a good player doesn't mean you become a good leader. So that, that's something that I not just learned in the course that I did, but you know, I reflect on that in my time in sport. And it's absolutely the case is that leaders need to be developed and they need they need growth and they need they need help to become better leaders. And for the athletes listening in that want to be a, a strong leader, what would be your advice in terms of develop developing leadership or maybe parents as well or or coaches of junior teams, what, what would be some of your favorite ways? to develop leadership in younger developing players? Yeah, look, I, I think sort of self-knowledge is really important. So who am I as a person and, and, a, and a player within my team? You know, what sort of, how do my teammates sort of see me? How do I see myself? And really having, you know, being crystal clear on your identity as a leader, whether it's, it is a player or a pra- practitioner, and, and being yourself, don't be someone you're not. That's one of my biggest sort of, pieces of advice, but be the best version of yourself. Like I'm, I'm not a ranter and raver, you know, and I never have been. Whereas I work with a, an Irish guy now who's an unbelievable strength and conditioning coach, but he likes to, you know, get into the players, and he, you know, really motivating, but that's not me. And I, I understand that that's never been me. I do it a different way, but I try and do it as well as I can. So try not, don't be someone you're not, but try and be the best version of yourself. And, and, you know, understand what that version is and, you know, try and hone it and develop it as, as well as you can. And is it building 
you know, working out your leadership style, is that through practice, do you think, mm-hmm. and what feels natural? Or is it a matter of, like you said, reading about different leadership styles and then starting to work out where you sort of sit in terms of your style? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. It would be, I think, doing a little bit of exploration and, and reading about different leaders. But another really, you know, something that a lot of people don't do is seeking feedback. So, you know, if you're, you're working in a team or in an environment, go and talk to three people who that you really respect and and put together sort of four or five questions about yourself and ask them to to write it down and then sit with them and get them to talk you through their responses and get some, you know, detailed and insightful feedback from people that you respect. And it's amazing how, yeah, like you might just get two or three absolute, you know, gold nuggets and that can help then spur you on to your next stage of development. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. That's a great advice for anyone that wants to just be better at at what they do, whether it be family life, work, or for those on the sporting field. Moving more to to this year, mate, what are you excited about? What's on the horizon for 2022? Excuse me. Yeah, look, we've got a bit of time off now, which I'm really looking forward to, you know, just chilling out. But, you know, we've, as I say, we've got a a really strong plan around what our preseason looks like like in 2023. We learn a lot at the end of the the season about us as a team. You know, it was a disappointing exit, but we really learned from that. And there's some real excitement even already, you know, about us going into 2023. A lot of our players have got to get through a Rugby League World Cup first, and hopefully they do well there and and don't get any injuries. But we're we're really, really excited and optimistic about what 23 can can be for the Roosters. And what does it look like managing the Roosters boys, while they're playing for international duties, is there much communication with yourself and their international SNC? Or, yeah, how does that look and manage? Yeah, look, we sort of, yeah, you want you want to keep tabs on on your guys because, you know, they're our best players who are, you know, you're, you're handing over to, to other practitioners and other coaches. But you don't want to, you know, feel that you're overly sort of burdening them with, you know, t- I want to report after every training session. You've got to, you know, trust in, in these organisations as well. But, yeah, like that's going to be probably our biggest challenge of the, you know, first third of the season is managing our World Cup players because most of them don't get back until after Christmas and then we've only got five or six weeks to get them ready for round one. So, yeah, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be really tight and we're going to have to, you know, our programs and attention to detail is going to have to be really high. But yeah, if we can sort of get them to the line for you know, round one and two, and and hopefully they're sort of well rested and recovered from the World Cup, and you know we start building our season. Yeah, well, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast, mate, and, and sharing with us your experience journey throughout your career as well. But also, a big believer that success leaves clues, and you've shared with us a lot of gems that's worked for you over your career that no doubt practitioners can start applying into their processes and, and systems. So. Thanks heaps for sharing about your journey as well as discussing culture and, and leadership, two tricky topics to discuss. There's obviously a lot of nuance with those, but it was great to go into some good detail around, around those two topics. For anyone who wants to follow up and ask any questions, mate, is there anywhere to get in contact? Absolutely, yeah. You can get, get to me via LinkedIn. Yep. I'm on, on LinkedIn. So, yeah, absolutely quite happy to, you know, if anyone wants to reach out and just to have a chat and then, you know, we can take it off LinkedIn somewhere else if that's the case, but um, that's probably the best co- best way to contact me, I reckon. And was there anything that we missed during the interview, mate, that you'd like to share? Any topics or maybe something that we didn't cover in terms of culture and leadership? Probably not, Jack. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an important area and it's an area that, you know, all organisations need to think about 
and and not just you know it's not enough these days to get what who you consider a good bunch of people and put them in an organization or put them in a department and hope that things are going to be okay there needs to be an intentional an intentional process to try and develop leadership and culture culture in particular and that obviously you know is is strengthened with good leaders so it's it's understanding that that leaders as i said leadership is a skill so you need to develop your leaders you need to work with them and then you need to be intentional about how you want your culture to look mm. and cult- culture quite simply is you know what we do every single day so you know you need to have a bit of a deep dive in what are our processes and what are our behaviors and do we provide each other with the feedback to enable change there but don't just let it happen don't just think it's going to happen you know you need to really be intentional about making it happen that's probably the the biggest thing for me or yeah it's de- it's an empowering philosophy because you have you do hear quite commonly in our field that um, leadership might not be a skill uh, and you've either got it or, or you don't so to hear that it is something like goal kicking that you can most definitely practice and get better at, uh, particularly for the not only the current people in leadership roles, but maybe future leaders as well that want to be a leader. It's yeah, not something that's given to you. You can actually yeah work on it, which is yeah, which is great, mate. So yeah, thank you again, and and thank you for all the listeners. If you've tuned in halfway through this live chat, make sure to watch the YouTube uh, show. The recording will be uh, living in our YouTube channel once we finish this live chat, and then we'll post the podcast in the next couple of weeks. So stay updated on our uh, social media. But thanks again, David, for jumping on and and thanks for all the listeners. Uh, Our next live chat was with Scott Dickinson. That will be next Friday, September 30th at 3.30 p.m. So I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, Head sports dietitian on the football club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes yeah, game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man that. Uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, 
perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have a lot quicker, um. And yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.